You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, next week, we are moving as a church over to the Palace Theater and the Springer Stage. Uh, And I was over there this past week getting some things set up and trying to do things I am not at all equipped to do. But as I was over there, they were in the midst of building their set for their new play that's going to roll out here in about a week's time. And that play is Cinderella. Now, I'm hoping because my cultural references always go wrong in this church that I'm safe when I say you know the plot of Cinderella. And if you don't, I'm going to give you a 30-second recap. There's a girl. Her father tragically dies. She becomes essentially a servant and slave to her stepmother and stepsisters until one day, by the power of a wonderful fairy godmother... She meets a charming prince, and though fate in a glass slipper would try and tear her away from him, his great love overcomes, he finds her, marries her, she becomes a princess, and they end up happily ever after. I hope I've done it justice. Right, here's the beauty of Cinderella. She begins as a lowly servant in a place that none of us want to be, and she ends up as a princess, right? The, the, the truth of the matter is, no matter how you've experienced Cinderella or if you've ever seen it, here's what I know to be true about every single one of us sitting here today. You don't want to be a servant, but you definitely do want to be a princess, right? 100% true of all of you. You don't want to be a servant, but you do want to be a princess. And if you don't, come and talk to me. And I'll spend time after our sermon today convincing you of how desperately you want to be a princess. Right? Royalty is esteemed in our culture. Having a great standing, having things given to you, being seen as worthy and beautiful and lovely is where we all esteem to find ourselves. None of us wake up on any given day and hope amongst hope that by the end of the day, we will find ourselves a lowly servant, forgotten about, looked over, poured out, a servant. And yet, in the passage we are walking through today, we find one who begins the day Seemingly, as the king of kings, the highest of all royalty, and yet by his own choosing ends the day dressed, acting, and living out the life of a lowly servant. We have been walking through for the last several weeks a sermon series that we've called Redeemer Encounters with Jesus. And our hope as we've walked through this sermon series is that as we cast our eyes on Jesus, as we see him live and love, act and heal, 
that our view of who He is would be expanded. But also, as our view of Jesus is expanded, our view of ourself is also clarified. And today, as the the stories of Jesus make their way towards the cross, we encounter something that both clarifies our view of ourself and what we are called to do and who we are called to be, and it also radically reshapes our view of Jesus. The gospel writer John gives us three formative truths about Christ Jesus in this passage. First, John shows us the beauty and dignity of Christ's service. The beauty and dignity of Christ's service. Second, John shows us the redemptive work of Christ's service. The redemptive work of Christ's service. And finally, John, through this picture of Jesus, shows us how Christ serving us frees and compels us to serve others. How Christ's service frees and compels us to serve others. John begins this story here in verse 1 saying this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world, To the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from the Father, and that he would return to the Father, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. At the very end of Jesus' public ministry, quite honestly, at the very end of Jesus' earthly life, after entering into Jerusalem just days earlier, hailed as the conquering king, the great Messiah, the anointed one that all of Jerusalem had waited for. Jesus, in his penultimate moments, lowers himself. John tells us that at the time of the feast of the Passover, and so we know that that all of, of, of Jerusalem, All of the Jews of the Israelites at this point in time would have gathered themselves together in or around the city of Jerusalem to to celebrate this high holy day. This day that commemorates how the Lord God had freed his people out of bondage. And here Jesus is gathered with his twelve closest followers, the disciples who had been with him for years. John chapter 13 is is the beginning of what's called the upper room discourse. John, amongst all of the other three gospel writers, really takes time to kind of zoom in on these hours on Thursday night 
the night that Jesus would be betrayed, the, the day before his death on a cross, John pauses from everything else. He zooms into this intimate time with Jesus and the disciples gathered in an upper room. No one else around, no one else to hear. No more great miracles to do before the public except for the resurrection which is to come. No more public teaching, no more crowds, just Jesus and the disciples. The, the, the meal has just been served. But before anyone else begins to eat, Jesus, unprompted and unbeknownst to the disciples, rises from the table. He takes out his outer garment and he wraps a, a towel around his waist. And then he gets down on his hands and knees and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now listen, it, 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 it really, any culture, no one is going to look at this passage and go, oh man, I'm so jealous that Jesus got to wash feet. Right, but in the, the, the ancient Middle East, there was a unique disdain for feet. Right, the, the truth of the matter is, in that culture, they walked around primarily in open-toed shoes, what we would call sandals, in the midst of a climate that was arid and dry. Dust and dirt everywhere. Not great sanitation systems. And so at any given time, when someone comes out of the street and into a house, by far the dirtiest thing on them will be their feet. Uh, our kids, I don't know where they got it. I assume it's from my wife. I'm going to blame it on her because it didn't come from me. But for whatever reason, my children love to go outside without shoes on. But they love to go outside without shoes on and with socks on. It's weird. Like, pray for our children. Okay? And they go out, and it doesn't matter if it's been raining for a week or not. It doesn't matter if the sprinklers have just been on or not. It doesn't matter if they're on the concrete or whether they're running through a garden bed. They're outside in their socks having a ball, and then you know what they do? They come right back inside with their socks on. Right Now, the beauty for us, as strange as that is, is all we have to do is take their nasty, dirty socks off and throw them in the wash machine. But that didn't exist back then. Number one, people didn't wear socks with sandals. To this day, I will maintain that's weird. Okay? And so if you're like 14, like my child, and want to have words with me, you can, but it's weird, right? So they walk into the room, and their feet are covered with every bit of grime and dirt you can imagine. And custom was that before you settled yourself down to a meal, especially amongst the Jews, you would always wash your hands and you would wash your feet, but the washing of feet was reserved for the lowest servant possible. 
As a matter of fact, it was custom in this day and age that if you had both a Jewish servant or slave and a Gentile servant or slave, it was known as a custom that this work would always fall to the Gentile slave. It was even above the rank of a Jewish servant or slave. And so when Jesus gets up, And begins to wash the disciples' feet. You can imagine that this man who just days before had been called the king. As the disciples walked into Jerusalem with him. Those very same disciples would be shocked at what Jesus is now choosing to do. Now, there's likely a couple reasons why Jesus is in some ways left to wash the feet of the disciples. First, and and most obviously, Jesus and the disciples are alone. There's no wait staff present with them to do the servant work. But even still... You would think that if there was one master and 12 followers of the master, that the serving would have fallen to one of the followers. Except for the fact that the other gospel writers tell us the conversation that was going on just before this moment. And that was a conversation amongst the 12 disciples about who was the greatest about who had done the greatest work for Jesus and his kingdom, and about who would, as the kingdom of Jesus was ushered in, be placed in the greatest position of honor. Now here's what I know. I know that if you were jockeying for a great position, if you were trying to prove yourself, as worthy and valuable and indispensable to the most important work of the kingdom, the last thing you would want to do is found yourself being caught in a position doing work that no one wants to do and seems to require little to no skill. And so you can imagine yourself as the food is brought to the table The disciples begin to look around, playing a a little bit of uh, discipleship chicken. That can't be a a, a term that should be used. But you can see them peering around at each other going, listen, Bartholomew is only like mentioned in one of the Gospels. He's definitely got to be the foot washer. Right? Peter's like, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Definitely not going to be me. Right? Matthew's like, I'm a tax collector. I've got enough money to pay someone else to wash my feet, even if you guys don't get your feet washed. And as they're waiting, Jesus stands up and begins to serve. But Jesus rising and serving the disciples in this quote-unquote, demeaning way. It reframes for us what it means to serve, and it shows in Jesus the beauty and the dignity of that service. Look at how John begins chapter 13. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world to the Father, Right, Jesus had continuously up to this point in time said things like, my hour has not yet come. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified is not yet. But now he knows that hour has come. Or to put it quite honestly and more bluntly, Jesus knows he's about to be crucified. As that hour comes, John says this, one of the most beautiful Phrases, in my opinion, in all of Scripture. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus had loved his followers from the first moments they were together. And, and honestly, Ephesians chapter 1 says that Jesus loved them before the foundation of the world. Jesus had always loved these men, had perfectly loved these men, and now as his life comes to a climax, as his time with the disciples here on earth draws to an end, John himself says, watch this because he's about to love them to the uttermost. The most profound act of love, save for the cross, may just be this moment right here with Jesus. Why is his service in a demeaning, lowly way such an act of love? Because as Jesus is preparing to face the cross, what is most on his mind is this. My beloveds have a need. And it is my joy and honor to meet it. And so Jesus gets up and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. Now, listen, if you're a parent or a spouse or a friend, you know that there are moments where it really is a joy to serve. Right, my, my two youngest kiddos, we've been trying to get them out of Rachel and I's bed and simply sleeping in their own bed. And for a season of time, we would allow them to fall asleep in our bed. Honestly, because it was just easier and Rachel and I were exhausted. But we're trying to break that habit. And so now, like the rule is, fall asleep anywhere you want, just not in our bed. And so routinely, they'll fall asleep kind of all over the house. And my job... At the end of the night, or one of my jobs, is to pick up one of my two youngest and to carry him to bed. And listen, it's always a sweet moment. Like, not always. Sometimes I'm like, will you get up and get to bed so I can go sleep? But for the most part, or sometimes, or every once in a while, I will look at them tenderly and think it's a beautiful thing that I get to be your father and I get to serve you in this way. Right? There's, there, there are times when serving really is beautiful and it's easy to see. But can I just be honest with you? This is not one of those times. These are grown men who in their own pride refuse to do what they ought to do by every social and cultural custom and norm. 
disciples were there in part to serve the master. The master was never called to serve the disciples, and certainly not in a way like this. But as these childish men refused to serve one another, in the midst of their own arrogance, Jesus steps in and serves as if, and quite honestly, I would argue, is to him like a doting father getting to serve their beloved child or like a husband graciously, willingly serving their bride. This is the way that Jesus loves his disciples and this is the way that he loves us. Listen, I have prayed many prayers Asking the Lord to do things in my life that felt like the Lord has simply ignored. And there are times in my lack of faith where I can feel things like, God, clearly you're too busy for me. Or clearly this is too low on your priority list because I don't know where you are and why you haven't answered me. But this story screams. There is no need or desire that we have that is too insignificant, too lowly, that Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is not willing to get down on his hands and knees and lovingly meet. He doesn't always say yes to prayers, but I can tell you clearly it is not because he is not willing to go to the uttermost to tenderly, lovingly serve us. But the beauty of his service goes on because John also ties Jesus' love for those in the world with his returning to the Father. John says that Jesus knew that it was his hour to depart out of this world to the Father. See, Jesus perfectly loves the Father. In the the mysterious, mind-blowing, too-big-to-comprehend nature of our triune God, who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly loving, perfectly in relationship, perfectly communing with themselves, himself, oneself. Jesus perfectly loves the Father. And we know that every person that has ever been born on this earth has been formed in the image of the Father. And so Jesus finds it his great joy to not just love us individually as humanity, but also to love and serve us as those who are made in the image of the Father that Jesus perfectly loves. But Jesus doesn't just serve the disciples. He doesn't just serve those who love him. Look who else is at the table. 
John says that the devil, verse 2, had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Like, I just think of this moment for a second. Jesus stands up, he takes off his clothes, and let's not, like, it, he took off the vast majority of his clothes into kind of an unseemly, lowly, slave-like position. He gets down and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Maybe he sees John first, right? The, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Maybe he sees Matthew next and he washes his feet and he can remember the, the, the position that Matthew was in, how he was hated and he was opposed to the people of God. And yet now here he was with his life committed to following Jesus and seeing the kingdom of God ushered in. And then he keeps washing these beloved men and then he comes to Judas. The man that he knows in a few hours will betray him with a mock kiss. Who has sold his life for a few pieces of silver. And you know what Jesus does? The exact same thing that he had been doing. And I would argue that because John doesn't call attention to it, the disciples couldn't even notice that his loving, beaming, servant-heartedness as he was washing every other disciple's feet didn't even change when it got to Judas. Right? If it was me and I got to Judas, one, I wouldn't wash his feet. I probably would have stood up and had some words. But at best, I would have washed his feet while everyone else around me would tell I don't think Michael wants to do that. Right? Like in my own home, when I'm like, you know, watching the NCAA tournament game or something, and one of my kids are like, Dad, can you give me some Fruit Loops? Like I will get up, and it sounds like I'm like having an asthma attack while I'm trying to get them Fruit Loops because I'm like, Right? Like my beloved child, and everyone knows, wow, dad, do you want to get the Fruit Loops? But here's Jesus serving the man that is about to get him executed. And all the disciples know as they watch him wash Judas's feet is, gosh, Jesus loves him too. The height of sinfulness for humanity. And Jesus is serving humanity. Like, can you, can you see this? And, and can you see what this means for us? This is how Jesus relates to sinful humanity. He lowers himself and lowers himself and lowers himself. He serves us. 
He heaps upon us grace and mercy time and time again in your darkest moment, in the midst of even your most heinous sin. If you are trying to figure out the eyes of Jesus, the posture of Jesus to you, this is it. He is not standing back and shaking his head at you. He does not remove himself as he goes, I will have nothing to do with you while you act like that, think like that, speak like that. In the midst of your sin, he gets down on his hands and knees and he approaches you with grace and mercy and says, I'll serve you again. Romans chapter 2 says this amazing thing, that it is the Lord's kindness that leads us to repentance. Jesus knows that Judas isn't going to change his mind. He's not doing this simply because he feels like, man, if I'm nice enough to Judas, maybe he won't wrap me out, hand me over. But the primary strategy that God has for your repentance, get this, is kindness. Kindness. It's not shame. It's not guilt. It's not threatening you with punishments. It's kindness. You don't think I'm good enough for you? Watch me serve you. You think you can find better contentment or pleasure apart from me? Watch me serve you. You think you don't need me? Watch me serve you. Again and again and again. And it's not just beautiful service, it's also dignified service. Right, in our culture, to be honored or esteemed means you have others that serve you. Not being the one that serves others. Uh, You may not know this, but our English word serve comes from the Latin word for slave. Right, even at its core, it has a negative, demeaning connotation. And yet Christ, who doesn't just serve, but literally takes on the outfit of a slave. That's why he took out off his outer robe. He wasn't wearing like a fancy robe and then thought, oh, I don't want to get this on my, my, my robe, so let me, let me take this off. He takes off his outer robe and he girds himself up, literally, that's the word, with a towel. Because that is what a slave wears. A slave doesn't walk in the room with a robe that is dignified. He walks in the room in a form and fashion where everyone knows that's a slave, not worthy of my honor and esteem, not worth my time. Jesus doesn't just act like this slave. He takes on the identity of the slave. So which is he, a king or a servant? And my favorite answer to multiple choice questions is yes. He is not less a king while he serves. In fact, he is a greater king while he serves. John tells us he was going back to the Father, and as a matter of fact, he knew that the Father had given into his hands all authority. The Father says, Jesus, here you are. You are perfect. You have followed me. To you belong all authority in heaven on earth. And Jesus takes the authority and he says, you know what I'll do with this? 
I'll get down on my hands and knees, and I will serve those created in the image of my Father. Jesus flips our view of service. He shows us its beauty and dignity, but he also shows us that his service is redemptive. It goes on in verse 6, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, I am uh, what I am doing, you do not understand now. That's, that's like the understatement of the century. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will afterward understand. But Peter protested again. No, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus. Peter hasn't learned not to disagree with Jesus. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Then, Lord, not just my feet only, but also my hands and head. And Jesus said, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He's completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was about to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. As Christ is, is washing his disciples' feet, he eventually comes to Peter, and Peter, the one who has no filter, a man I greatly resonate with, says probably what everyone else is thinking, but no one else is willing to say. He looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. This is super demeaning, Jesus. Sorry, that was my best like teenager acting, right? Like this is, no, Jesus, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. I know you're the master. Here's probably what he was thinking. At this point in time, I'm starting to get that one of us should have got up and washed our, the feet. I'm not going to let you do it. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing. And as an aside, it's pretty clear that you never do but you will. But Peter, once again, disagrees with Jesus and says, no, of course not. I'm not sure if you heard me the first time, Jesus. Let me make myself clear. You will not wash my feet. To which Jesus, I, I think, kindly says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't get to be with me. And Peter who does desperately want to be with Jesus for all of his failures and foibles, says, okay, if washing my feet means I get to be near you, then wash it all. That way I can really be close to you. Now, what is Jesus doing? Why does Jesus say to Peter, it is so important that I wash your feet and that if I do not, you will have no part of me? Jesus is telling him and the disciples and us that his service is cleansing us. That his service is doing something to us, is meeting a need in us, is putting us in a position and posture before him that does not just meet a temporary need, but will meet soon an eternal one. See, to, to be invited into the, the eternal banquet, if you will, 
Revelation paints the, the picture of what we are heading towards one day in the new heavens and new earth as an eternal wedding banquet, the celebration to end all celebration, and to be ushered into this wedding banquet, to be invited into the kingdom of the King of Kings, to be invited into the presence of the Holy God, we must be clean. We have to be clean. And Scripture makes clear that our current condition, apart from Christ Jesus, is permanently stained with sin and death. But Jesus has come to cleanse us. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Jesus' physical cleansing of the disciples' feet here is a shadow of what is about to occur spiritually through his service to us, his sacrifice for us on the cross. Jesus is hours away from the cross. Hours away from his arrest, betrayal, torture, accusation, and agony. And yet he's not distracted. He knows that what his disciples desperately need is his redemptive work and to understand the glory and the power of that redemptive service that he is offering them. And so Jesus leans in and he says to them, listen, what you need is for me to serve you. Peter goes, okay, so if what we need is for you to serve us by cleansing us with water, then clean me all. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. It's not this water that you need. You've already taken a bath. What you need to recognize is that you are a needy person and your greatest needs must be met by me. Here in this room, it's to have your feet washed. But tomorrow, upon the cross, your need is to have your sins forgiven, cleansed, and replaced with a righteousness that will not fail. I meet your needs. Christ's service is always redemptive. It's always meeting needs. It's always healing what is broken. It's always stepping into the midst of this fallen world and bringing the seed of the perfection of the kingdom of glory where all is right. It's bringing heaven to earth. Every time he serves us, every time he meets our needs, he is redeeming that which is broken. And hear this church, when we, as his body, go out into this world to serve those around us, we are continuing to do his redemptive work. We are continuing to step into a world that is broken and bring healing. We are continuing to meet people that are hurting and bring comfort. 
We are bringing to those that are steeped in shame and guilt grace and mercy that by the gospel covers them. When we meet the marginalized and we esteem them and we value them and we tell them and we show them through our actions that they are worthy and made in the image of God, we are bringing the good news of the redemptive work of Christ into the world. Brennan has lifted so much burden off my hands by running and spearheading AV. But I got to tell you something. He's not just clicking buttons and setting up wires. He is bringing heaven to earth. Short story that I have heard once and loved forever. A dad goes out into the backyard one day and uh, they've got a little shed out back and they need to build some steps up to the shed. And so he brings his little seven-year-old son out back and he said, hey, today you and I are building steps. The dad gets all the tool out, tools out and he gets the, the mortar mix out and he gets the, the, the stones out that they're going to lay. And for the next several hours, the dad is sweating and toiling, building these steps. And the son is chasing butterflies, and the sun is falling asleep on the grass, and the sun is throwing rocks at the fence, and the sun is doing everything but helping. And the dad gets to the very last step. All he has to do is put one more stone in place, and the steps are done. And he calls his seven-year-old son over, and he says, son, come here, come here. Put your hands right here, right here. And the son puts his hands there, and he kind of starts to push. And, of course, nothing happens. He's just not strong enough. And so his dad puts his hands right next to him, and he says, on the count of three, push. And he counts to three, and they push together, and the last stone slides into place. And the dad goes, let's go in and have dinner. They sit down at the dinner table. Mom comes and looks at the little boy and says, hey, what would you do today? And he just looks up glowingly, and he says, dad and I built steps. no matter how insignificant your service feels or looks. You're building the steps of the kingdom of God. When you show up here to set up this space to turn a children's theater into a holy sanctuary where the people of God come and dwell and worship and meet their heavenly Father, you are doing the redemptive work of Christ. Always his service is redemptive. And finally, his service leads to ours. The story ends this way. Jesus, when he was done washing their feet, puts on his outer garment and resumes his place. And he says to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him, if you know these things. Blessed are you if you do them. Listen, without the gospel, this sermon would be really easy. 
it would be encapsulated in something that sounds like this. Jesus says to serve, so go and do it. And the truth is that the Lord does command us. And he is worthy of our obedience, full stop. And yet, the gospel changes the equation of why we serve. The service of Christ frees us to serve, and it compels us to serve. How does it free us to serve? Well, here's the truth. Service takes from us. As creatures and creations, we long for certain things. We desire things like comfort. We desire value. We desire to be honored. We desire rest. And oftentimes, when we serve, it seems like to serve means we must forfeit our comfort. When we serve and are not recognized, it feels like we are overlooked and not honored and esteemed. And when we serve, we must work rather than resting. And yet Jesus says, before I call you to serve, I have served you. Which means that I have given you already a greater comfort than any you can ever find yourself. And so you can serve this world without sacrificing great comfort. Through my service, I have esteemed and honored you as worthy of the King of Kings' time, attention, and service. So you can be overlooked by the entire world because you have the honor and esteem of me. And yes, service calls you to work, and yet you are free to pour yourself out in that way because I offer, give to you an eternal rest the resting of your heart, the resting of your soul, and an eternity in my presence that can be classified as nothing but joyful rest that your service can never take from you. The gospel frees us to serve. We no longer have to protect ourselves from being overtaxed or overspent or overlooked because Jesus has not overlooked us. Jesus has filled us to overfilled. The gospel frees us to serve, but it also compels us to serve. Because part of belonging to Christ is being conformed to his heart and his desires, and his desires are for the world around us. He says himself when he describes his heart that he is gentle and lowly. And so to be his and to belong with him, or as Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, means to have Christ living through me, which is going to compel me to go to the least of these, to lower myself, to take on humility, to serve those who need. Because that's what my king does. That's what the Spirit of Christ within me desires. And it also means that as we do these things, we are going to experience Him. The the Chosen, a show I love. There's this scene where Jesus is kind of prepping the the Sermon on the Mount. And He's talking with Matthew and He he gets him up and He says, Hey, I've, I've figured out how I want to start the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew says, How? And He says, It's a map. 
Matthew says, fantastic, tell me. And Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And he goes on and on. And Matthew looks up at Jesus and he says, yes, this is beautiful. How is it a map? And Jesus says, because when people look for me, they'll find me amongst these people. It doesn't mean that Jesus is only with the low. It doesn't mean he's only with those that are afflicted. But it does mean that we experience his presence and his power as we walk the way of Jesus, which means we serve his creation. Let me end here with a confession. I'm not a great servant. I was raised by two people who are servants to the core. They are great servants. They give themselves away oftentimes and their time and energy without a second thought. But my life tends to be busy. And I tend to run on pretty thin margins. And I constantly feel the need to protect my time and my energy. And that doesn't take into account the fact that, quite honestly... I desire people's approval and honor, and I want to not be forgotten about or looked over or be in the background. I want people to esteem me. And when you put those things together, I oftentimes find myself shying away from giving myself away in sacrifice and service. But it's clear that when I do that, and I'm preaching to me and you, I am missing out on opportunities to trust the Lord. I'm missing out on opportunities to see and experience how he has already served me. And I am missing out on opportunities to humble myself, to take on the identity that my Savior has and to experience him. The service of Christ is astonishing. It is beautiful, it is dignified, and it brings about the kingdom of God, and you and I are called into it. Let me end here. A hymn that was written that captures the beauty of this passage. It says this, Great God, in Christ you call our name, and then receive us as your own. Not through merit, right, or claim, but by your gracious love alone. We strain to glimpse your mercy seat, but find you kneeling at our feet. Then take the towel and break the bread and humble us and call us friends. Suffer and serve till all are fed and show how grandly love intends to work till all creation sings, until all worlds, and to crown all things. Pray with me.